This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It's Friday, September the 29th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, the weekly news panel assembles. The panel features Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Today, three tactics. Three topics on deck, including Anthony Rota's resignation as House Speaker after he invited a Nazi to be honored in Parliament. Not great. There's also some predictions to be shared about the Manitoba election that's coming up next week. And a couple big tech companies are facing antitrust lawsuits. The three of us will explore the implications. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours on AMI-tv. But the show begins with the top story of the day. And there's a whole bunch of economic news to share with you. Unifor has set a Thanksgiving Day deadline for reaching a labor deal with General Motors. Karen Rebo has the story. The union represents about 4,300 auto workers at GM's three facilities in southern Ontario. Negotiations between the union and the U.S.-based automaker resumed this week after workers at Ford voted last weekend to approve a new contract. Unifor is looking to use its agreement at Ford as a pattern agreement in its talks with GM and Stellantis. The Ford deal included wage hikes, pension and benefit improvements. As well, it adds two new paid holidays. Unifor has set a deadline of 11.59 p.m on Monday, October 9th for reaching a deal with GM or workers will launch a strike. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press, Toronto. In other labour news, Air Canada pilots are demonstrating outside Pearson Airport today. John Kennedy has that story. The Airline Pilots Association kick-started the bargaining process in June, one day after fellow union members at WestJet ratified a new collective agreement. The union represents more than 5,000 Air Canada pilots. Both union and employers say the so-called informational picket at Terminal 1, which comes the same day as their own nine-year deal expires, will not affect Air Canada's flight schedule. Charlene Hootie, who heads the union's Air Canada contingent, says the agreement has grown stale and co-workers are leaving for better pay in the United States. John Kennedy, the Canadian Press. Another economic story, this one coming from the Green Energy Transition File. A new $7 billion electric vehicle battery factory will be built near Montreal by Swedish manufacturer Northvolt. The federal government and Quebec government will both be providing funding for the plant. The 170-hectare site will have the capacity to produce 1 million batteries a year. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau reflects on what this means for the economy. This is a historic and transformative announcement. Northvolt's investment will bring end-to-end battery manufacturing to Canada, making our country one of only a few locations to have this capacity outside of Asia. This is part of our vision for a stronger economy for generations to come. Northvolt plans to have the plant operational by 2026. The company wants to double production 
over time. Looking abroad across the Atlantic, the European Union has released their latest inflation data. Charles de Ledesma crunches the numbers. The official figure from the European Union's statistics agency was 4.3% in September for the 20 countries that use the euro, down from 5.2% in August. That raises hopes consumers will eventually get relief from costlier groceries, vacations and haircuts, and that the European Central Bank could avoid raising interest rates again. But economists say some of the dip is a quirk, and if oil prices rise any further, a hopeful decline in inflation will slow. High prices have been holding back the European economy because people's paychecks don't go as far as they used to in covering their bills, forcing them to avoid other spending. I'm Charles de Ledesma. A couple things from that report. Number one, I love that in the priorities that Charles de Ledesma lists for European spending, it's haircuts, our very fashionable European friends being stylish. I like that one. Number two is something you hear me yammering on about all the time. Oil and energy prices, oil and energy prices as drivers of inflation, something that central banks have absolutely no power over, but they think that they control inflation. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Okay, coming back to North America, the clock is ticking for United States lawmakers to reach a funding deal. Jennifer King has the latest. The White House is telling its workers to prepare for a shutdown. According to communications obtained by the Associated Press, the House passed bills to fund the Departments of Defense, Homeland Security, and the State Department. But House Speaker Kevin McCarthy insists he won't take up Senate legislation designed to keep the federal government running, telling reporters Thursday he still has time to get it all done. We will pass a continuing resolution, bring that rule up hopefully on Friday that uh, would keep government open. McCarthy's acknowledged that divisions within the GOP conference are hampering the chamber's ability to do its job. His House allies hope the threat of a shutdown could help with the push to limit federal spending and combat illegal immigration. I just don't understand how a Republican here would side with Biden in keeping the border open. In the event of a shutdown, Social Security, veterans' disability, and Medicare payments would not be affected, but many federal offices would close. Some workers would be furloughed, and paychecks would begin to be halted within weeks for millions of workers and military troops. Jennifer King, Washington. That's your look at the news. Here come the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Thursday, you were asked, two Canadian arenas are introducing no-checkout shopping kiosks. They are using Amazon's Just Walk Out technology. How do you feel about a frictionless checkout experience? 37.5% of you said good, 62.5% of you said bad. On Facebook, at Accessible Media Inc., Brett writes in, if I have the option to use it and choose not to, then I'm okay with it. If this is happening all over the arena, it's not appropriate, in my opinion. And Brogan writes in, Neat idea if the software is truly operational and accurate. I like that, Brogan, thinking about the quality assurance point of view in the conversation at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. This one requires a very, very short news setup. The International Paralympic Committee has voted against suspending Russia's membership. This means Russian athletes could participate at the Paris 2024 Games. So I'm asking you straight up at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, should Russian athletes be allowed to participate at the Paralympics? Yes or no? John Lepke, you're filling in for Alex Smythe today in the co-host role. I know you've got a relationship with the Parasport movement. What do you think? Where should this leave Russian athletes? Should they be allowed to participate in the coming Paralympic Games in Paris? 
Yeah, and thanks again so much for having me. Now, past athlete me would have said, don't punish the athletes for the ills of their country. But actually, that's shifted for me over time because I no longer see this as a punishment for the athletes. I see this in a way as a punishment for the Paralympic Committee um, if they decide to, because I don't think that Russian athletes should compete. I, I think that the Paralympics can't, uh, to use the phrase, have their cake and eat it too. You can't pretend to be a non-political entity um, while also being inherently political. So I would disagree with their their stance, and and hopefully we can see some change. Although I'm I'm not exactly hopeful on that front. Yeah, John, I, I'm always inclined to explore the conversation between morals and ethics and what the international sporting movement means. The one little thing that I would throw up as a flag here, though, with international competition does allow an opportunity for an athlete to defect from their country. So that's one of the reasons why for years and years international sport has maybe welcomed in athletes from, um, let's call them more authoritarian, totalitarian, or problematic governments because it actually does give them an opportunity to potentially get out of that situation. It's one avenue on the way out. You see that a lot with Cuban athletes when they're going to international competitions. So the one thing that I think about in, in my position on the yes or no on this is what opportunity am I denying an athlete who wants to get out of a very bad situation? I wonder especially about an athlete with a disability. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned Cuba you know, if you listen to or watch any documentary about baseball in Cuba, you'll hear them talk about defecting being, you know, their main way out of the country. I, I don't have the data in front of me. I'd be curious the last time a Russian athlete defected. I think that it's it can be a country by country discussion um, in a way. Uh, we saw this with, I believe it was a fencing athlete a few months ago where um, somebody almost lost out on their spot at the Olympics, a Ukrainian athlete, because they declined to compete against the Russian athlete. Um, John, it's not even, it's not that they decided to decline to compete. It's that they wouldn't do a gesture of sportsmanship. They're like, I'm not right, doing right, sportsmanship right. with this person who whose country is invading my country. Yeah, which is so uh, the sort of anachronism of of sport, isn't it? Oh, you won't give a handshake? Well, we'll ruin your career. Um, and, I, and I sort of feel the same way you know, we've seen like in tennis where these tournaments have backtracked and I don't think it's been to their benefit. So, yeah, like I said, I yeah. think that uh, Russian athletes shouldn't be competing at this stage of the Paralympics. It's, uh, I acknowledge the moral and ethics of the complicated question that I'm posing. Amanda Shikarchi, what do you think? Should Russian athletes be allowed to participate at the Paralympics? Okay, so I will start with a bit of a like disclaimer for the viewers. Um, I haven't fully been following everything that's been happening this year when it comes to the Olympics, but I will say I do agree with you, Dave, about you know giving the athletes an opportunity to compete because you know again, like you know, this is something they're passionate about and you know they should have this opportunity, especially with something as big as the Olympics.
I think it's important not to misrepresent my position. It's not about giving them the chance to compete. It's giving them the chance to potentially defect from the regime if they want to. That, so I, I want to be clear about my position. If I'm going to vote yes, it's more about giving athletes a pathway out of the country and less about saying, hey, you've done a lot of push-ups in your life, therefore you get to, uh, you get to compete. Uh, Amanda, John, thank you both. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also chime in via email feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. You can also chime in via phone call, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Should Russian, should Russian athletes be allowed to participate at the Olympics? Easy for me to say. Coming up after the break, the news panel gets together. Anthony Rota has resigned as House Speaker after inviting... Someone who fought on behalf of the Nazis in the World War II as a special guest in Parliament. Michelle McQuigg and Judith Gupta will explore their takeaways from the controversy surrounding the story. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's Friday, which means the weekly news panel gets together. That means Michelle McQuigg and Joita Gupta stop by to share their thoughts on a few of the biggest news stories of the week. Good morning, Michelle. Morning, Dave. And hello, Joita. Hi, everyone. All right, let's jump right in. It's been a weird seven days around the halls of Canadian Parliament. The Cliff Notes version, Canada welcomed Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky for an official visit on Friday. House Speaker Anthony Rota acknowledged a special guest during the pomp and circumstance. Here's the thing. The special guest was a Ukrainian World War II veteran who fought on behalf of the Nazis. In other words, not to put too fine a point on this, a Nazi. Stuff hit the fan. The fallout, Anthony Rota resigned as House Speaker. The Prime Minister apologized and called it an embarrassment. Immigration Minister Mark Miller says the country will consider declassifying documents about the presence of Nazi war criminals in the country. Michelle, when I say cliff notes, I mean that's the cliff notes. What do you want to explore in the historical context and this news story? Yeah, really, truly cliff notes. But it, it's a fast, it's a crazy story all around. It was clear from Sunday when it broke that this was going to be uh, a news driver for the next several days. And in fact, it has been. And the part that really kind of fascinates me now, now that we're through the immediate fallout of who is responsible, uh, is anyone going to step down? We're, we're past all that. But we are still asking questions around ultimately who is responsible around you know vetting processes for guests in parliament, which is an ongoing thing. But more than that, it's really the the... Canada's history of of harboring war criminals, effectively, that has come back into the spotlight as a result of all this. I learned things even in the course of editing stories about this. I had no idea about the Deschen Commission from the 1980s, for instance. Uh, I'm sure some of our listeners do, but this was news to me and I suspect to a lot of people. There's questions around how Canada has has welcomed and and allowed people who took part in, in significant war atrocities to to live free. Uh, and those records are still not 
widely public. So there are so, so many angles we could pursue here, but those are the ones that really stand out to me. Joita, I acknowledge there's some complexity to this story as Canada being a tapestry that does take in a lot of people from different places, including people who've lived in totalitarian or authoritarian places that where uh, sometimes you are faced with some extremely difficult choices as a human. What's your perception of Canada's history in welcoming people with problematic or checkered pasts? Well, I think there's a lot can be, that can be said, but I'm just going to zero in on the fact that Canada has, as this case points out, welcomed Nazi war criminals. And uh, the first thing that needs to be pointed out there is that Canada was not alone in doing so. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think a lot of us need to go back and look over is our history, which tells us that during the Second World War, Russia fought alongside the Allies. And then... Um, in the early 50s, and with the advent of the Cold War, Russia is suddenly on the other side. And there's a real fear that crops up in places like Britain, the United States, Canada, about communism. And so anti-communist sentiment really takes off in the 50s. And it's in this context in the 50s of this rising anti-communist sentiment that Many countries, Canada and the others, were willing to look the other way when it came to the past of many of these Nazi war criminals. The reasons for allowing them into the country were complex. Uh, Intelligence was a big reason. Uh, Oftentimes, um, some of these war criminals had uh, been part of intelligence apparatus in their in their local countries, which made it easier for them to spy on the Soviet Union or even to spy in in East Germany. Uh, so sometimes it came down to uh, a desire to um, have access to the technical and scientific scientific intelligence of a former Nazi of the former Nazi regime. Uh, a really Good example is the is uh, Werder von Braun, who was um, very high in the Nazi command and was later and later went on to become the head of NASA uh, and was basically allowed a pathway to the United States. So one really has to put this particular situation as to why it is that Canada comes to accept Nazi war criminals into the context of what was going on in the 1950s and the fear of communism. What I've, I had discovered in researching this particular this particular story is that in the 1950s, the Ukrainian community in Canada was actually quite left-wing. And so there was a fear that communist sentiment would take hold within the Ukrainian community in Canada. And as a way to neutralize that, so you might also argue something of a, a calculation or a strategic or, or some kind of a strategy went in there. But as a way to neutralize that 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 rising the fear of rising communist sentiment amongst the Ukrainian community, Canada was more willing to disregard the Nazi past uh, of of, of right wing Ukrainians uh, in order to try and and neutralize that. Uh, 
So, Julia, so that, that, that's a really long history lesson, but I think what's important here is you left out two really important years, 1939 to 1941, when the Soviet Union was not fighting against the Nazis, it was a non-aggression pact, and Ukraine found itself right in the middle of that. I, I, I just want to keep coming back to some ideas here, that we can all agree that Nazism is bad, but I think we also have to understand that when somebody comes into a village with a gun and says, you fight for us or we kill your family, it can be a much more complex question mm -hmm. than simply saying war criminal. Because for fear of being accused of whataboutism, there's a lot of people that get welcomed into this country from really problematic countries yeah. where there's genocides going on and they may have had a part in it as a soldier, but we don't necessarily label them as a war criminal because we understand the notion of totalitarianism and authoritarianism. Michelle, you said this week has Can been I pretty, pretty eye-opening for you. Please chime in. Yeah, well, I think this circles back to another issue that's going kind of corollary to this, but that's really come to the fore for me. And that is, has to do with education on this stuff in Canada. Yes. There, there's a whole point, to, the whole lecture to be gone on here. If you if you take a look and think about this and say, okay, hey, if there was someone in, in a, a, a Slavic military unit of some kind fighting against the Russians, ergo, they were fighting for Germany. That is how World War II worked. <laughs> like that is actually what happened here. After 1941. And, Yes, after 1941. Yeah. Um, but that is, this is something that a lot of Canadians should have been able to arrive at on their own. The Speaker of the Cer House. Certainly, the, so. certainly like, the Speaker of the House. Like, certainly, absolutely. if you're a politician, like, you should come to that conclusion. You should understand what's going on. You here. should know this, exactly. And that's what I'm saying. If, if that kind of knowledge has not percolated through into the very halls of democracy in this country, then there's clearly a dearth of, of education and history and, and real understanding of these things. And without that kind of understanding, the sort of nuances that you and Joita were both trying to get at are much, much harder to explore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but Michelle, Michelle, more broadly speaking, like what is your perception of the country's history in welcoming people with problematic ha pasts or checkered yeah. pasts? Um, well, I, I didn't realize to what degree I think Canada had looked the other way on this. And one of the, the, one of the findings of the Duchenne Commission that I have found really interesting is the conclusion, and that is shaping a lot of the current discourse, is that being part of a unit itself does not necessarily constitute a war crime, uh, even if it's a voluntary unit the way the Ukrainian First Division was, so the one that this particular veteran took part in. Uh, that is an interesting finding, and I think it is probably a nod to, to get at the very nuances that you were trying to highlight, Dave, and the fact that there are complexities in why people enlist in the first place. But the fact is there are thousands of people who are allowed to carry on their lives in Canada. And what really I think is most troubling for a lot of people is the lack of transparency around this. There's an understanding that we are allowing problematic people in here, but there's no real effort to, to keep track of these problematic elements. And I think that's what is really driving a lot of the calls to reopen those records and be more transparent about this kind of thing. Now, would you limit that to simply World War II or do you start engaging in the Dave Brown exercise of whataboutism? I think you'd have to. Frankly, yeah, I don't I think, think you I think could you limit it to, to one too. conflict. I think, yeah. I think you have to as well. I think you can't just simply look at this through a narrow lens. I think you have to look mm -hmm. at this at, at anybody you bring in. One of the issues in this conversation, though, this week, is there are groups that are saying, even if you've been accused without proof of being part of a unit, your name should be listed publicly. I'm not comfortable with that. I'm just not, flat out. Like you can call it It goes against our justice system. I can't imagine any government signing on to that. Yeah, thought. completely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Joita, 
So I, I know you gave a really good history lesson there, but as you start thinking pragmatically, what are some of the guardrails or policies that can be put in place right now to prevent the issue of welcoming in people who are accused of being a war criminal or were involved in uh, unjust war units? Mm. Well, I think the most effective guardrail would be better scrutiny during the the immigration process itself, um, so that there's a little more emphasis placed on checking people's backgrounds and their affiliations before we grant them asylum or citizenship in Canada, right? So that would be the first place to go. Uh, but then also... Uh, in 2000, there was a, a a piece of legislation passed, which was the um, which was a which 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 was a piece of legislation that basically said that at this point it would be possible for Canada to prosecute uh, those who uh, were guilty of war crimes or those who had been charged with war crimes, even if those uh, even if that if, even if those war crimes hadn't taken place inside Canada. So. Prosecution uh, is one other uh, possibility, right? So the first thing to think about is really uh, looking at our immigration system and trying to build some of those checks into our immigration process. But failing that, then we have some tools for prosecution. And in some cases, when it makes sense to do so, we might also want to consider deportation. So those are the three things that I might be able to suggest in terms of actually putting some guardrails into place. But we have come a long way since the 1950s when Canada and other countries were willing to look the other way and what the Deshaun Commission did and other subsequent piece of legislation did is already put many of those guardrails in place. So it's not like there isn't anything out there. Mm. Uh, things have certainly changed a lot in the last 50 to 60 years. And when you have, uh, you know, we've had other conflicts that Canada has been involved with and, uh, People have faced prosecution, especially, let's say, for their involvement in the Rwandan genocide. So it's not like people mm -hmm. are just able to put down roots here and yeah. there's no accountability. It's just this one particular instance where there's a very high profile case of someone slipping through the cracks. Yeah, Michelle, I, I think I think Joey is really onto something there. There's got to be some really solid upfront scrutiny and there needs to be the possibility of ongoing scrutiny if accusations are brought forward, which also means there's a vehicle or a mechanism to investigate this. But I'm going to acknowledge that's extremely difficult to put in place. When you're trying to investigate a war crime that occurred, you know, 20 years ago on the other side of the world. A hundred percent. And now, of course, so much more time has gone by. If we're talking about the Second World War context, a lot of the people involved here are, are well into their 90s at this stage. So that introduces another layer of complexity. And there have been cases in Canadian history where we've seen that people's problematic past have been uncovered, have been acknowledged as problematic, and deportation efforts still don't work. Uh, the name Helmut Oberlander might mean something to some of you. I'm not sure if that rings a bell for a lot of people, but there were there was a decades-long effort to get him deported back to, I forget which country of origin. It was, it was in question here because there were jurisdictional matters at play, but that was in a sort of a, a litmus test of how complex these kinds of cases can be, even in getting deportation with history established. Mm. So I think a lot of it does come back to, to transparency. If, if, we, if we're going to take the stance and allow, cast a really big tent for people of a whole kind of different backgrounds, there has to be not only those mechanisms that you and Joita talked about, but there has to be some degree of, of accountability and transparency on how that's working and why and where. 
Yeah. Uh, Juita, Michelle, I think, clearly identified a, a big concern or takeaway here in regards to education, a lack of knowledge about within our country about the history of World War II and maybe more broadly about some of the complexities and layers of geopolitics. My big concern here is that the Trudeau government continues to only look at things as black and white issues. They seem mm -hmm. incapable of understanding where things can live in the gray, and they're willing to do all these performative things and have egg on their face over and over, and it seems like they're not learning their lesson. And I think that was something you expressed a little bit last week in regards to the fights they're having with China and India, that it seems that perpetually this government only sees the world as a binary. I would say this may strike me as another example of the government simply looking at the world as a binary and not even considering context or, or anything other than optics, and then the egg blows up in their face. But what's, what's your biggest takeaway or concern from what happened this week? Actually, my biggest takeaway uh, was the education piece and the fact that people hadn't really factored in that um, if you were fighting against Russia during the Second World War, you were most likely fighting for the Nazis. And that Antonin Rota, when he read his speech, much less when he rehearsed it, and his staff that likely vetted the speech and found the guest, um, that none of these people actually caught on to it, much less the hundreds of MPs who were sitting in the House and didn't realize that this is what was happening. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, that, I mean, the, the education piece is a really big one because you would think that there would be an instantaneous reaction to this. Yes, of course, we can talk at length about the liberal government and the fact that, you know, uh, they're looking at things in, in terms of black and white. And, you know, I read a really interesting headline that says, you know, is an apology enough? Is a resignation enough? What else needs to happen? I mean, these are really important questions to be asking. But the most staggering revelation for me are the biggest takeaway from this fiasco, because, and I say it's the biggest takeaway because you you got to wonder, I mean, how much are people taking away from, how much are kids taking away in their classrooms or university lectures if we aren't making these simple connections? Because everybody has at some point or the other encounters the history of the first and second world war and this was just a basic thing that someone has learned as the speaker of the house and the people sitting in the house just completely overlooked and if if these are people who are so plugged in and have whole you know oodles of staff helping them so that they don't put their foot in it and they make a mistake like this what does it say about the rest of us so the education piece really was the one thing that jumped out at yeah. me out of, out of all other con out of all other things, to be honest. Michelle, I, I think you know at this point where I land on performative politics and optic politics. <laughs> I think it's basically like the downfall of our civilization. I'm at the point where forget vetting special guests in parliament for little standing applause and little special moments. It is totally distracting from like really important policy. I'm at the point where we shouldn't have special guests at all in Parliament. Like, you should just be doing the business of Parliament, and I do not care that it's boring, but I think that if uh, we are going to keep the special guests, uh, it's up to parties to, like, really put the fine-tooth comb on this and not embarrass the country like the Liberal government did this week. Because it embarrassed the country. Like, it's worse than embarrassing oh, it the country. It's shameful. It's shameful what the what the federal government did last Friday in what was a very important visit from the, from the President of Ukraine. Like, a very, very important geopolitical visit it. And mm -hmm. the fact that a week later, all we're talking about is the incompetence of this government really upsets me. And again, platforming people who fought on behalf of the Nazis is not 
acceptable. I can live with the idea of complexity and saying, man, Central Europe and Eastern Europe were a complex place in the 1930s and 1940s. But to then say, but we need to have our little special guest so we can have a round of applause. It's embarrassing, it's shameful, and it shows everything that's wrong with politics. But that's my preamble to asking, how do you think Parliament should handle special guests, Michelle? Well, uh, I, in, in, really, yeah, sorry. <laughs> your, your response is giving me a lot to think about there. Um, at least a Google search, people. Like, honestly, like the, the, the fact that we don't understand how any kind of vetting process works, I don't know what, if anything, took place here, is is very upsetting and, and concerning and all this. But I'm with you, Dave, that this is a deeply humiliating event for all concerned. I cannot imagine what it was like being... President Zelensky, who was Jewish, the parliamentarians who were Jewish, who applauded this guy without knowing the context, like that's a betrayal. That That is just, I, I don't even have the words for how that must have felt. I can't imagine how it must have felt without being had that kind of background, but it's it's pretty, it's really dreadful. I'm really struck though, Dave, by your position on the blaming aspect, because that is another one that's going to be a live active thread for a while to come. You have positions digging in their heels on what ought to be a more unifying event, and, and now this is becoming a bit of a partisan game, and there's even bickering as to which committee should take a look at what happened, because if the PMO was involved, then it has to be this committee, but if it was if it was isolated to the speakers, then it has to be committee number two. Right. Like it, It's just a whole quagmire, and you're right, Dave, there's a lot about this that just highlights everything that can and does go off the rails with politics in this country, but I would argue that it is not necessarily unique to anyone oh, oh, administration. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. No, no, I agree. There's performative stuff everywhere that gets me uh, amped up every single day, Michelle. <laughs> don't don't you worry. This is not limited to the halls of parliament for me. Uh, Michelle, Juita, we've uh, talked about this for 20 minutes. Let's uh, put a pause on it and move on. Because up next, the political conversation continues, except this time in the context of the Manitoba election. It takes place next week. The three of us will explore a couple of the issues that have been prominent during the campaign. And maybe, just maybe, you'll get a prediction. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown alongside Juita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Let's get into the next topic. Manitobans are headed to the polls on October the 3rd. The provincial election campaign has focused on health care, economic growth, tax cuts, and in the last couple of weeks, a sense of reconciliation, maybe not by name, but it's come up between the lines. The temperature has been mm -hmm. turned up with attack ads in the last few days. Polls show that it's a close race with a few days left. However, you know how I feel about public opinion polls. Progressive Conservative leader Heather Stevenson and NDP leader Wab Canoe have been crisscrossing the province, rallying support. Joita, what has your attention in the Manitoba election? I admit uh, it kind of it took me by surprise that it was happening uh, in a, in October. October 3rd is right around the corner, and I just realized that everyone has been gearing up for this provincial election in Manitoba, and I, I seem to have dropped the ball on it. Uh, sorry about that, Manitobans. Anyone listening? Uh, <laughs> but with that said, it, this is a really interesting election for me for a couple of reasons. Of course, if the Tories... Uh, win the election on October 3rd, I doubt 
a lot will change, uh, but it would be the first time that a woman becomes a premier of Manitoba. Hedda Stephenson took over from Brian Pallister about two years ago, but didn't actually win an election. Um, so this will be the first time that there that the that should the Tories win, that we might have a a woman premier who is elected outright. And on the other hand, if uh, the NDP takes office, then Wapkanu would become, I believe, Canada's very first Indigenous premier outside of Nunavut, which is also a very province. exciting development. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it should be a really exciting election to watch just in terms of just the people who are uh, who are the front runner, who are sort of foregrounding the conversation here, but also some of the issues that have come into play. Uh, we had a story out of Manitoba that we talked about on the panel uh, some weeks ago, I want to say about six to eight weeks ago, uh, about uh, searching a garbage dump for the remains of uh, some missing Indigenous women. And it's been very interesting to see how that story has also come into play during the campaign. Mm-hmm. So we could certainly spend some time talking about the issues and make a couple of predictions, if you dare, about the outcome <laughs> on October 3rd. We can definitely engage in some predictions. Uh, Michelle, I, I think it's been pretty clear from the NDP's point of view, from Wab Canoe's point of view, really the first couple of weeks of the election campaign, hammering health care, just hammering health care as one of their key uh, goals as a party to open up more clinics, oh, yeah. hire more employees, improve long-term care, really hammering the health file. And then on Heather Stephenson's end, the Progressive Conservative Party, talking a lot about changing the tax structure in the province and focusing on economic growth. So those two things early in the election stood out to me. But Juita did mention the story of the search of a Winnipeg area landfill for the remains of a couple of Indigenous women. It has been a flashpoint story bubbling below the surface. But in the last week, that's really come into focus uh, as, as Manitobans are heading to the polls. It really has, and I, I'm with you, Dave. That's the that's the one that I have found the most fascinating. That the NDP healthcare stuff is interesting. They also want to call a public inquiry into the handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, which would be uh, quite interesting on a number mm-hmm. of fronts. Mm-hmm. But the, yeah, the, the prairie the prairie green landfill hunt. Uh, I think you might have been off the week that we took this on. I believe it was Alex and Joita and I who thrashed this one out because I do find this issue really interesting. And to me, it's it's astonishing that a, a sitting government would take out an ad in a paper saying we are not going to search this landfill. They've been very clear on their position in the past. They are, their arguments are, are largely based on the fact that there are limited odds of success for searching this landfill and the cost is prohibitive for doing so. But that message has clearly not let resonated with the electorate. And now they're literally digging in their heels and taking out ads explaining why they're not going to be doing this. That is a really unusual move for me. It's put wind back in the sails of people who feel differently, that they feel this this landfill ought to be researched. Uh, there was a court injunction put in place a couple months ago to end the blockade, but the blockade is now back. Clearly, this is an issue that does galvanize people, mm. and I'm really interested to see the way it's, it's playing out. And I'm also struck, not just by the way the Conservatives are handling it, by, but by Wab Canoe's effort to mm. kind of defuse it a little bit politically and saying, uh, that's really interesting that the Tories here are trying to make this issue touching on the lives of real people into a political matter. I'm sure he would do the same thing if he was a sitting government, but it is an interesting tack to take at this moment. Yeah, Joita, I-, I found this evolution in the election campaign to be quite interesting, especially in the context of tomorrow being the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, especially in the context of Heather Stephenson previously saying, I don't want to mark that as a statutory holiday inside the province. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of thing where the ad that they took 
breakout this week they probably thought was a calculated opportunity to get their base passionate, but it may have left a distaste in a lot of voters who would have preferred not to be thinking about that going into the polls. Oh, undoubtedly. I mean, I think they're really trying to batten down the hatches, as it were, and, 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 you know, dig in their heels and pander to their base. Um, But beyond that, one of the things that's been really interesting is it just is, is hearing how much the economic side of the argument has been coming into play. I mean, one of the reasons why the sitting government said that they would not search the landfills is because of the $10 million cost associated with doing so with very minimal odds of success. Uh, even though Wapkanu is more willing, should they form government, to conduct the search, it was also very interesting to hear that the NDP is also saying that they're not going to try and they're going to try and cut down the cost. So they're going to look into the expenses and, you know, make sure it's not taxing the public purse. It's quite an interesting argument to see that both the NDP and the Tories are really trying to uh, play to the, the are both trying to sort of establish their positions, but also taking a view that they don't want this to become prohibitively expensive. So the economic arguments are are really interesting to to think through in in terms of this particular issue. The other one that was really surprising for me actually was the um, the fact that the Tories have made as part of their campaign, and this has been getting a lot of publicity. Uh, the privatization of alcohol sales uh, has been really oh, yeah. front and center in their campaign, and I I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, you've got the NDP talking about building roads in northern Manitoba and you've got the NDP making all these promises about healthcare and then on the other side you've got the Tories saying you can have alcohol for free or you can have alcohol not for free but you can have alcohol you know inexpensively available and we'll have alcohol available in in a lot of other places and you have to wonder if they're taking a page out of the Doug Ford playbook and the old buck a beer thing because you know I don't know if that if that kind of thing tracks with with voters, but it has been very interesting to see how much prominence the the sale of alcohol has been getting in in terms of the Tories campaign. It's it's a meat and potato issue. There's no doubt yeah. about it. Although in my experience walking around Winnipeg, it's uh, not too difficult to find a liquor store. Maybe not as easy <laughs> as Calgary, but not too hard. Uh, <laughs> M- Michelle uh, Heather Stephenson has been critical of the federal government. I wouldn't label her as combative with the federal government. What do you mm-hmm. think the federal implications are depending on the results? Yeah, I don't think this is going to be massive. You, you're right. Heather Stephenson is no Daniel Smith or Scott Moe. She's or, or pre-pandemic Doug Ford constantly having a go at the feds. It's not like that. So I, I if she were to remain in power, I suspect things would just carry on as as they were without a, a whole lot of acrimony. Wab Canoe, I suspect, would be able to forge a bit of a stronger relationship with this administration, but that could get quite interesting in a couple years' time if the federal fortunes change and we wind up with a conservative government that would right. be deeply opposed to Wab Canoe. So I suspect that the full implications of this won't really become clear until the sec- the back half of whatever government forms on on. Tuesday, I think this election is. Yep. Um, assuming they form a majority, I think it'll be in the back half of the mandate that we see the full implications. And of course, that is another possibility that we might not wind up with any kind of majority government, in which case, 
everyone's energy is going to be concentrated on trying to keep the lights on and the ship afloat at home right. and trying to probably limit federal engagement as much as possible. <laughs> uh, Julia, I'm inclined to agree with Michelle that there's a lot of moving factors to discuss federal implications. But even if uh, the progressive conservatives are reelected, I don't perceive too too much of a shift and even if Wab Canoe gets elected the NDP gets elect, elected I'm not I'm not imagining a gargantuan shift in the relationship as I mentioned Heather Stephenson uh, was sort of the the key spokesperson on a lot of the healthcare deals that were struck earlier this year and and although she was critical of the feds there was a pretty good working relationship that existed there yeah, I, I don't see a seismic change either. I mean, um, the, uh, you know, Heather Stephenson's uh, campaign does say that if they're, if they are reelected or returned to office, then they will challenge the federal carbon tax. So that might be, a, you might see a little more acrimony on that particular file, but I suspect that things will chug along much as they always have. I would be very interested if, however, um, the NDP does end up forming government and what Canoe becomes the next uh, premier. I would be very curious to see how this might affect um, reconciliation efforts uh, across, not just, of, of course, in Manitoba, but also whether this would have any bearings on, on federal reconciliation efforts. Uh, that that would be something that I would be curious to see. But I think in the main, I don't suspect that even with an NDP Manitoba government um, on Wednesday morning of next week, we're not going to see a, a seismic change there either. So yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't see a lot of ripples being formed. I, uh, I have told you guys before, I do not trust public opinion polls. They tend to skew a little bit uh, left of center. I have no idea why they do, but they continue to skew a little bit left of center. If I was going to predict an outcome, I'm thinking probably a small majority or a minority for the progressive conservative government. Michelle, oh. I know you're in the uh, business of not making predictions. Uh, come on, come on, though. It's just between you All and right, me. No I'll, one else I'll, is I'll, Yeah, I'll... Okay, good, good, good. Cover yours, everybody. Um, I am going to go with NDP minority. Hey, I actually right. think that there's, I, I suspect the appetite for change is there. And if even in this conversation, I had the thought of if someone was going at me over healthcare matters or tax structure, which one's more likely to engage my attention? That good point. Well, well laid out yeah. by Michelle. Okay, Joey, the last word goes to you. If you had to make a prediction, who you got? I think I'm going to go with Michelle as well. I think the NDP, uh, most likely a minority, but, you know, I would, I mean, the polls might even, uh, the polls are saying they're doing quite well, but I would hesitate to say that they might get a majority. After all, if you look back to what happened in Alberta, the NDP was doing really well huh. in the polls, but clearly that didn't materialize yeah. Yeah. on election yeah. day, so... Also, also, the notion of a province-wide poll and the distribution of votes across ridings uh, is an entirely different yeah. conversation about electoral <laughs> reform, and I keep promising you that one day we'll talk about it, but not today. Thank you both for your thoughts on this one. Coming up after the break, two big tech companies are facing antitrust lawsuits south of the border. The panel will explore the implications. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Juita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. One more topic for you. Two big tech companies are facing antitrust lawsuits south of the borders. U.S. prosecutors have accused Google of using its power in the marketplace to squash competition. Specifically, prosecutors are concerned about Google's search engine being embedded exclusively in iPhones. The case was brought forward earlier this month. And then this week, Amazon got slapped with a suit. Lisa Dwyer has those details. The Federal Trade Commission and 17 state attorneys generals have filed an antitrust lawsuit against Amazon. They allege that the e-commerce giant uses its position in the marketplace to inflate prices on and off Amazon, overcharging sellers and stifling competition. It's one of the most significant legal challenges brought against the company in its nearly 30-year history. The lawsuit also says that Amazon buries listings offered at lower prices on other sites while charging sellers high fees, forcing merchants to raise their prices on the platform as well as on other e-commerce sites in order to keep their products competitive on Amazon. Some estimates show Amazon controls about 40% of the e-commerce market. Amazon says the FTC is wrong on the facts and the law. I'm Lisa Dwyer. Well, wrong on the facts and the law. That's a big claim right there. Uh, I put these two stories together because I see a common thread. To me, it represents a shift in the way that government wants to handle big tech in the marketplace, a shift that's probably five or six years too late, Michelle. But to me, this represents a shift in the way they want to have relationships with big tech. But to your mind, what do these legal cases represent? I'm completely with you, Dave. To me, this has a feel of the government saying, oh, wait, this tech has completely changed the world. And now we re- need to redefine our own parameters with it and and find our own relevancy in this new scheme of things and try to bring things back to sort of a pre-tech norm. So I feel like this is the government trying to sort of recalibrate the relationship, uh, try and maybe try and put a genie back in a bottle to a degree. I'm not sure to how successful these efforts are going to be, but I certainly find the arguments really interesting. And I will say that I learned something just now in this voicer that you played from Lisa Dwyer. Uh, I would have guessed that Amazon's control of the e-commerce marketplace was far higher than 40%. So uh, that's interesting too. But these are huge players. The, the Googles and the Amazons are multi into the trillions now in terms of their net worth, in, in Google's case at least. Mm-hmm. And uh, these are just absolutely giant entities. And I feel that there's an element of sort of tug of war at play here with the government trying to uh, to make sure it can still play the game to some degree. Joita, again, acknowledging that these cases are coming from the Department of Justice and attorney generals at the state level, to me, it represents a shift in the way that the government wants to grapple with big tech. What does it represent to you? Yeah, I agree with you. I think uh, this definitely is, I, I wouldn't say it's a it's, it's a shift. I mean, antitrust legislation has existed for a really long time, oh, yes. like hundreds of years. They've broken up like Standard Oil and became 43 different companies. The last time the Department of Justice uh, launched an antitrust lawsuit against a big company, it was in, against Microsoft in 1998. So it's not five or six years, uh, you know, since it, I would say it's more like 25 years in the coming that we should have had another one of these because in the last 25 years, some of these tech companies have become really big to the point where they're not only in a tug of war with government, but they've actually started to bully government. Take, mm. for example, the the you know the story that we've talked about extensively on this panel about Facebook and Meta 
getting into a fight about paying uh, for Canadian journalists. Yes, yes. And so that, mm-hmm. you know, and the fact that now they're not posting that content as a way to bully the Canadian government. So if they're successful, uh, and and by the way, in 1998, the, the antitrust lawsuit was successful in breaking yes, up Microsoft. So if they were successful, it would really strengthen the hand of government in a number of different ways, not just in trying to break up some of these companies into more manageable entities, but also in terms of some of the other fights that government is having with these big tech giants in terms of getting them to pay for content or pay journalists for their work that they're doing. So I think this has far-reaching implications in how government's uh, a look at uh, the role of big tech in our lives and try mm. to regulate them, which has always been a bit of a back and forth. And I suspect it has implications for all of us as end of users course. as well. If the allegation is true that Amazon is inflating the marketplace by either delisting or burying cheaper listings, that is a big, big deal. And I can 100% oh, yeah. understand why a consumer would say, yep, break that up, knock that off. I do not like that. But there is a flip side to this as we're talking about the fangs the facebook amazon netflix googles etc the apples etc if you think about the streaming world there was a time when having a monopoly was great when netflix was the one sole power it was a yep. lot easier to as a consumer to buy streaming content and i would argue that getting broken up not by antitrust but because of competition in the marketplace made it worse for the consumer there's only about 90 seconds left here on the clock michelle do regular people actually have an appetite for the breaking up of these companies if it actually might make their experience as a user worse I think it really depends. I think there's a lot of people who would like to see Google broken up on privacy grounds, people who care mm. about that. I think what will be very invested in this kind of case, um, a lot of Joe users probably won't care. Uh, but the Amazon matter, I with you, I think that one, I mean, it hits people right on the wallet. That one, I think people will absolutely be on side with. But I, you know what? I think there's a broad enough appetite for a, for enough different interests that you can get some some degree of public buy-in, whatever your grounds for pursuing these cases may be. Joita, last word goes to you. You've got about 45 seconds here. I know that I'm picking a very specific anecdote on the Netflix and streaming front, but I think it's one that can resonate. Do you think people actually have an appetite for the breaking up of some of this big tech? I think as long as it means that they can get more for less or they, ha- they they can actually surf the web and have greater privacy. I think the fact that things might be more expensive than they need to be or the fact that they that people don't have privacy when they're on the internet, I think those are the issues that will really get people hooked on this. They may not be as sold on trying to break up large companies. That may not be the issue that draws them in, but certainly the other stuff. <laughs> yeah, there might be a little too much specificity into that one, a little bit too much of the big <laughs> short or dumb money at play on that one. Hey, Joita, <laughs> thank you for this. Have a lovely weekend. Thank you. You too. Uh, Michelle, you're working all weekend, and uh, instead of catching up on Monday or Tuesday, we're going to catch up on Wednesday, so I'll drop you a line on uh, Monday nights to uh, to confab and collaborate. Sounds like a plan. Have a great long weekend, everybody, or well, AMI crew. AMI crew, yeah. <laughs> we are taking the day off on Monday to honor the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. So that's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Joita Gupta is the host of The Pulse on ami audio coming up after the break i've got the regional news update and brock richardson will stop by for a sports chat this is now with dave brown on ami tv welcome back 
It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I am Dave Brown and you are you. It is Friday, September the 29th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, the Writers Guild of America has officially ended their strike. Greg David explains what their new contract entails. And Entertainment Canat... Canada, Entertainment Canada <laughs> is coming to an end. I'm just shook. I used to work there. Amanda Shikarchi will have more. But the hour begins with the regional news updates. Starting in the territories, the Premier of the Northwest Territories has announced she will not be running for re-election when the fire-delayed vote is held on November the 14th. Carolyn Cochran was first elected as a member of the Territories Legislature in 2015, and she was voted in as Premier in 2019. Over to British Columbia. British Columbia is bringing back a mask mandate in health settings. The policy goes into place October the 3rd. The mandate applies to all hospitals and medical facilities owned and operated by health authorities. Long-term care homes are also included. Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry hopes people will be chill about it. And I appeal to our better natures. We know that this is a, a relatively uninvasive, unobtrusive thing that is an important measure in healthcare settings. And I encourage everybody to, to take that point of view and to make sure that you're doing your part. It protects you and it protects those around you. Spoiler alert, Dr. Henry, people will not be chill about it. Over to the prairies, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe says he'll use the notwithstanding clause to pass pronoun legislation in the province. Emily Chavesky takes a closer look. It comes after a judge granted an injunction to pause the policy that requires parental consent when children under 16 want to go by different names and pronouns at school. Mo calls the injunction a judicial overreach. He says the policy has strong support from the majority of Saskatchewan residents and parents. LGBTQ advocates say the policy could cause teachers to out or misgender children and violates the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. And over to the Atlantic region, the New Brunswick government has signed a new collective agreement with the province's teachers. The deal includes wage increases of 15% over five years. The deal is retroactive to 2021. The entry-level wage and the maximum salary have also been increased. The deal covers 7,800 teachers in the public school system. Their previous collective agreement expired in February of 20. 2021. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. So Brock, before you do a full weekend look ahead, there's a sliver of information out of the Canadian Football League that is prompting an age-old question. The Toronto Argonauts have clinched their playoff spot They've clinched home field advantage. They've got nothing to play for for almost a month pretty much at this point. So it begs the question of athletes resting before playoffs. Yeah, so uh, this is a question that came to my mind. And I'm wondering from you, should they have some rest? And how much of that should there be? One. Two, is there a sport where rest is more important 
than rust or vice versa. So where would you Oof. lay on the football <laughs> side of things? Do you think there should be rest or are you worried about rust? Brock, this is an age old question in sports that I'm not sure that I have a great answer for you. I'll say this structurally within the Canadian Football League playoffs, the Toronto Argonauts are guaranteed a bye week by winning the conference. They are going to get a week off between the season ending and the playoffs starting. So right there, that means they're going to have some built-in structural rest. You have to be careful about taking your foot off the gas pedal because they've been rolling the whole season And you wonder and you worry about what happens if you start messing around too early and getting outside of a rhythm. You've seen this at the start of the NFL season. A lot of the teams that didn't work hard enough in the preseason or didn't put their starters out enough in the preseason looked really bad to start the year. If I were the Argos, I would maybe introduce a policy of the fourth quarter For the next month, we're going to take our foot off the pedal, but we're still going to try to beat the brains in of the teams playing us. What do you think? Yeah, I I think that's the right strategy. I think, to your point, the NFL, we we saw struggles with that this year with the the preseason. I don't want to see that for the Toronto Argonauts. I really think they have a real good opportunity to repeat and with the um, CFL playoffs it is a one and done deal so this is no best three best of five best of seven it is a win you move on lose you go home so to me you do want to you know keep the foot on the gas the other thing though that you don't want to do is put your quarterback especially in positions where there could be a brain in uh, a concussion I was going to come up with brain injury there for a but, second uh, that's what it is I mean that's uh, yeah correct. I, I know but uh, yeah, no, you could you could suffer your quarterback having some kind of significant injury that you don't want to do. But yeah, I would say, you know, play them for the majority. I would even say to you, maybe we look at the score at halftime and decide, you know, how deep we need to go with players. But at least the first half of games, you you owe it to the other teams as well not to mail it in yeah. either. How often does it happen in hockey in the playoffs when a team gets a week off between rounds and they just come out so flat in game one of the next series? It does, that's not exclusively the case, Brock, but you see it a lot where teams come out flat when they've been chilling for a week playing golf. Uh, now, baseball's a little bit different. When you're talking about baseball, you mentioned this earlier this week, the notion of crafting your starting pitcher rotation. You want to make sure you're sending your aces out there in game one and two and then making them available late in the series so there's a lot of value in baseball when you can rest your players specifically your pitchers yeah but sports contact sports like hockey and football you almost need to be in the war to keep the adrenaline going and and not to move too far ahead here but this is why this weekend is really important for any team in in major league baseball to solidify where they are because if you're going to, you know, manage your rotation and figure out what you want to do, now's the time. You don't want to be burning a starter on Sunday that yes, you were planning yes. on using on Tuesday. That's just not the way you want to do things. And so for me, this weekend, all across baseball, I'm looking and going, who's where and who had to burn a starter that they didn't necessarily want to. And that's a big, big thing. And that really puts you behind on your on your back foot when you have to start with a pitcher you not necessarily wanted to. 
Yeah, let's do that, Brock. Let's do the weekend look ahead. Let's jump into the conversation about where Major League Baseball stands. Because in both leagues, the National League and the American League, there's a very compelling playoff race. I'm going to do this off my phone because I want to make sure I get these numbers right. Let me just let you know about the situation in the National League first, Brock. There are currently five teams competing for two spots separated by a couple of games. Now, some of these things are long shots. Like the San Diego Padres really aren't in this thing in earnest. And to a certain degree, neither are the Cincinnati Reds. But the mathematics, Brock, say there's five teams still alive for two spots. So there is all kinds of mathematical chemistry, long division algorithms to figure out how that works. But in the American League, it's pretty simple. The Toronto Blue Jays control their own destiny. But if they lose all three games to the Tampa Bay Rays inside the Rogers Center, uh-oh, SpaghettiO. There are some serious machinations with the Seattle Mariners and the Texas Rangers. Yeah, they they do play each other, the Seattle Mariners and Texas Rangers. So theoretically, you could you could win one game, which they've already done, but it becomes a real mess. So for me, win one of your next uh, three games and it's it's done and dusted. Remember, too, the Tampa Bay Rays don't have anything to play nothing, for. The Baltimore, nothing. The Baltimore Orioles uh, clinch the division. That's going to be that. What do, the, what do the Tampa Bay Rays do? The likelihood is that both of these teams play each other. Both teams are probably not going to want to show a lot. So take advantage of what you get. Uh, on both sides and so for me it's very compelling but i'd like to see this done either tonight preferably tonight but at the latest saturday because i do not want kevin gosman going on sunday which would be his scheduled start to to do this because that wouldn't be the way that i would want to do it and then you're going to go uh gosman bassett or jose barrios probably is the uh, uh is the three guys that you would go in what order we'll see Bassett and Barrios will be interesting to see how they how they manage that but we got to get there first so yeah win tonight and let's take care of that the, the best case scenario for the Blue Jays is win tonight it doesn't lock you in guaranteed to the number five spot in the playoff bracket but it essentially does and then you can let Houston Texas and uh, Seattle sort out who's going to get those last two spots whether it's their division or the wild card spot Best case scenario for the Blue Jays, get this over with tonight, take a breath, chill out for a couple days, and maybe get ready for a series against Tampa Bay, a two-game series in Tampa Bay that would uh, start next week in the, uh, I guess they call it the wild card round, but I, I, I can't figure out what they call anything anymore. It's all, it's the, it's the first round. It's the first round of the playoffs. Let's keep things simple. Brock, yeah. the other side of the weekend football or sporting equation I promise you out there in listener land and the viewer vortex, Brock and I will not hammer you with our two favorite football teams every single Friday, but Brock is a Buffalo Bills fan. They're two and one. I'm a Miami Dolphins fan. They're three and oh, and they're playing Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time on CBS. I sense that's going to be the primary game on CTV as well. Certainly in the Toronto region, Brock, it's a measuring stick game both ways for both teams, and I am terrified. Yeah, and you know what? Ask me as a Bills fan, I am also terrified. I I don't know what we're going to expect. Tua has looked great. Uh, you guys are supposed to get uh, Waddle back uh, this, this weekend, your wide uh, receiver, which will be good for 
for Miami, but this is going to be a good game. So good that I'm inviting a neutral zone colleague, Josh Watson, over to my house, who's also a Miami Dolphins fan. So somebody's going to be really happy and somebody's not. And then I get to come here on Tuesday. And again, someone's going to be really happy and someone's not. (laughs) Someone's going to be miserable and someone's going to be sad. Uh, The way the Dolphins have played this year has been very imaginative. Tua Tungavailoa, their quarterback, is getting the ball out of his hands in less than 2.5 seconds. That's number one in the NFL. Yards traveled in the air by the ball after he throws it is over 10 yards. That's number one in the NFL as well. So he's getting rid of the ball quick and he's getting it downfield. That's something to take note of because the Buffalo Bills last week absolutely made the quarterback for the Washington Commander's life, his name is Sam Sam Howell, made his life a living H-E double hockey sticks. They sacked him nine times. They intercepted him four times. They hit him a bunch more. The Bills were getting after the quarterback last week. And the way that Tua is getting rid of the ball, it's going to be harder for them to do that. But you just know, Brock, that your Bills are going to scheme something up to try and take away those intermediate throws and maybe put a little bit of that extra pressure on them on a, on a Miami offensive line that is good but not great. Buffalo's going to be a problem. The Buffalo defense is going to be a problem for Miami on Sunday. The, the other thing from a Buffalo Bills standpoint that really needs to be cleaned up is Josh Allen needs to hold on to the ball. Yes. I, I, I don't I don't care if it's 2.5 seconds, 3 seconds, 4 seconds. Just don't have three interceptions. Because if you have three interceptions, it is going to be game over. Like, you cannot, you cannot do this. Yes, I understand they're in Buffalo. I get all that. But you need to take care of the ball on your side of things because you're not going to have the ability to wiggle out of early deficit against this team. It's just not happening. And it's going to be a good matchup, but uh, we'll see who comes comes out. Like I mentioned to you after the first game of the season by the Buffalo Bills and even after Sunday, I mean, they absolutely trounced Washington on Sunday, but it took them a while to get there. They started slow. They were sloppy. And that's been sort of the calling card for Buffalo so far this season, starting slow and being sloppy with the ball, even in wins. So it's worth being mindful that you don't want to do that with Miami because the one thing Miami's doing is scoring a whole mess of points and you don't want to find yourself chasing the game no football team wants to be chasing the game late no matter how good you are a quarterback like josh allen is okay brock one more thing to get to it's the daily poll at accessible media on twitter at accessible media inc on facebook this news coming across the wire this morning the international paralympic committee has voted against suspending russia's membership that means russian athletes could participate at the paris 2024 games so brock the question is unfair in its simplicity but it is straightforward. Should Russian athletes be allowed to participate at the Paralympics? Yes or no? No. Just simply no. You want to elaborate a little bit on that? I wasn't sure if you wanted me to or, or uh, no, I just, I, I don't think they should. I think all that's going on with Ukraine and it just, it puts such a, a difficult vibe, a difficult situation for people to be in with the war still going on you're putting uh, people's mind frames different. It just makes it really tough. And no, I don't think they should compete. I just, I don't. Yeah. Until the war ends, they they should not be should not be allowed to compete. And I know I can hear people out there saying we're involved. No, but 
these athletes in Ukraine have family and friends and people that their country has, uh, for lack of a better term, affected. And, and it's yeah. just not fair. And I don't know that I would feel comfortable if I was from Ukraine competing alongside Russian athletes. I just wouldn't. Brock, you're a former Paralympian. Thank you for your thoughts on this one. Have a great weekend. You as well. That is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. Don't forget, the poll is available at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, at Accessible Media on Twitter. Coming up after the break, ET Canada, Entertainment Tonight Canada is coming to an end. Amanda Shikarchi will have more on this story about a place where I used to work. A little bit bummed out. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. John Lepke is standing by with the weather update. John, you are a prairie flower, and the news today is coming out of the prairies. Viewers maybe uh, may not see it, but or listeners may not see it, but I have a, a prairie lily behind me. Yes, uh, today's weather story of the day takes us to southern Alberta, where Calgary and area's weather seems to be the definition of a paradox. As the Weather Network and CBC reported yesterday, the Foothills region may see their first snow of the year over the coming days. However, at the same time, the city of Calgary is still under water restrictions that were first put in place in mid-August. The goal of the restrictions, which the city attributes to saving 1.1 billion litres in the month and a half or so since they were implemented, is to replenish the city's water reserves after what has been an abnormally dry spring and summer. This is the first time that Calgary has had to implement restrictions of this type due to drought. During these restrictions, Calgarians can only use their sprinkler systems once per week for a maximum of two hours. Residents can use a hose or watering can at any time, but aren't permitted to do things like wash their cars, hose down their sidewalks, or fill decorative water features like fountains. As for the cold, Calgary is currently forecasting rain today and into the weekend, but snow is expected in the mountains as a cold front pushes through. John, I would suggest that of any of the cities or communities located in the southern part of Canada, I'm going to leave the north out of this, I would say Calgary must have collectively the wackiest weather. You get the Chinooks in the winter where you get days where it's like 17 degrees, and then you get snow in the summer, and then you get weekends like this where you're surrounded by snow and it's raining, but you've also got drought. I would make the argument if I was power ranking the weirdest weather in the country, (laughs) I'd say Calgary is probably number one. I would say Calgary's probably number one, and I would have to put Halifax or one of our East Coast cities number two, because I've stood in Halifax Airport where you have seven different weather systems in eight and a half minutes, and you go, am I, am I still in the same place? <laughs> yeah, I think the coastal the coastal communities in general, Halifax would definitely constitute and qualify on that one. I know PEI can get some like weird weather spells, and I've, I've spent some time uh, across Vancouver Island. I was on the south coast of Vancouver Island once, and I couldn't figure out why the ground was so cold but i was so hot in the sun i just couldn't figure out the south coast of vancouver island at all it was like it was it was strangeness but i think i think i think you're right calgary number one halifax number two if you were to create the power ranking absolutely maybe we can do that on the next weather segment Ah, i host ah, 
<laughs> I think that's a good idea. That's John Lepke with your look at the weather. He'll be back with a roundtable topic about lawsuits against cold effects in about five to six minutes. And in one minute, Entertainment Tonight Canada is closing its doors. Amanda Chikarchi will share more on the entertainment report. But first, Meta is showing off some new smart glasses. Mike Dubusky tells you more in Tech Trends. Engadget's Devendra Hardawar says the new Ray-Ban Meta smart glasses are a far cry from the company's earlier attempt at smart glasses, the Ray-Ban Stories. Those things barely exist. Those felt like a beta launch. This feels like the first proper launch of Meta's smart glasses. The new specs come with speakers embedded into the arms, which Meta says are 50% louder. It gives you audio so you can listen to music or podcasts without putting AirPods in your ears. There are also two front-facing 12-megapixel cameras that can live stream directly to Facebook or Instagram. They can take photos and they can take high quality video when you shout a voice command at them. Artabar says that gives us a hint as to who Meta expects to buy these new glasses. Influencers or people who are always thinking of posting may want to pick these up just to be able to grab a quick image. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Turning to Amanda Shikarchi with the Entertainment Report. Amanda, a place where I interned in 2011 Entertainment Tonight Canada, ET Canada closing its doors. Thank you, Dave. Yes, so Entertainment Tonight Canada is ending after 18 seasons. The final episode airs October 6th. The cancellation is due to the associated cost with producing a magazine-style show. As a result, the whole team are laid off. Also, there are no future plans for entertainment shows. So, Dave, I'm really curious on your perspective on this as someone who has previously interned there. How does this show stand out from other entertainment shows? I don't know if it necessarily did something that was totally different, but you had just some incredible people working on camera and behind the scenes. I've spoken before about Rick Campanelli, formerly known as Rick of the Temp on Much Music. He was just such a nice guy on and off camera and it really showed people like Cheryl Hickey were such amazing broadcasters and so good at what they did and then you get people doing special features like Roz Weston who uh, used to be a radio host up here in the uh, Toronto neck of the woods and they would send him out to go do a lot of uh, their longer form interviews I remember he and I once went out to interview uh, Jody Fisher uh, Carrie Fisher of uh, Star Wars fame when she was doing her one-woman show coming through Toronto and just the way that he connected with guests and got them to laugh and open up. He was just a tremendous guy. I, Amanda, I think what ET Canada did really well is it played within the existing format of a lot of cross-promotional entertainment stuff, a lot of junkets, a lot of basic actor marketing interviews but just did it in a way that was a little more fun and a little bit less stodgy and like not super earnest. And that's a huge credit to the producers behind the scenes and the camera people and the editors and the hosts and the writers, all of these people that I worked with for admittedly a short period of time, but who all made a tremendous impression on me. They just did the show in a really creative way. That, that, that's my long way of saying they just did the show in a really creative way. Yeah, I love that. And I actually totally agree about what you said about Roz because I actually listened to him a lot on Kiss 92.5 and I definitely enjoyed the interviews that he has with the different celebrities because as you said, the energy just comes across so naturally the way he's just so warm to the oh. guests. It's great to hear. 
He's so um, smart. I, Ra Roz is such a smart guy. The, the book that he wrote a couple years ago about mental health, like just amazing, like just incredible. The guy is, the guy is unreal. Yeah, I'll for sure have to check it out. But yeah, about ET Canada, I definitely think it's, I, I enjoy watching the magazine style shows, but also getting to see, you know, the Canadian perspective, you know, getting to hear from celebrities like Serena Ryder, who may not be as well-known worldwide. So I like that they got to encapsulate that mm. um, in their celebrity gossip. Amanda, you're totally right. They absolutely managed to balance the broader entertainment picture that you would get pretty much 30 minutes later on the regular edition of E.T., the American version of E.T., but they would manage to do that, but also, you're right, bring in that Canadian context, Canadian celebrity. They walked that fence beautifully and elegantly in a way that not a lot of broadcasters have the capacity to do. So you're totally right to identify the way in which they platformed a lot of Canadian celebrity. Well done by you on that front. Oh, thank you, Dave. So what do you think the future of Canadian entertainment shows should Ugh. look like? Oh, man. Uh, Amanda, I, I think you're about to walk me into a conversation about monoculture and the collapse of monoculture and maybe, like, the death of general interest television and radio as it stands, which is bad news because <laughs> that's what I do for a living. I think, Amanda, we've entered this point in entertainment television in specialized programming where if you're going to be specialized programming you really have to stop talking to the lowest common denominator and really generalizing what you're doing i think you really have to start saying someone who's going to watch et canada or whatever the next iteration of it might be really doesn't want to get all these basic identifiers oh taylor swift's album name is this it's like, no, you have to sort of go past that baseline stuff and start offering meaningful analysis and thoughtful things to say about the work you're doing rather than simply just thinking of it as an exercise in journalism. And I know that's not easy to do, but I think if you're going to do very specialized and specific programming, you've got to be able to actually make it specialized and specific and let the viewer or the listener pull something away from it because if you don't they're just going to go to a podcast that is specifically about taylor swift or they're just going to go to a podcast that's specifically about alicia sakara they're not going to tolerate one minute on taylor swift that's totally vapid i know i keep coming back to taylor swift amanda because obviously that's like the the story of the day but i think you get what i'm drifting at here right like it can't just be general interest anymore if you're going to cover these stories you've got to cover the stories I totally agree with that because it kind of adds another element, you know, to get the full picture, to get why do we care about this? I think that's a big part of journalism is the why. Yeah, I, I do think the pandemic, uh, although it's sort of an afterglow at this point, I think it also influenced the cancellation of the show because it's changed the way in which these TV shows interact with actors. It used to be you would go down to these press junkets and you would get in the room with them and you could ask them some questions and it was a very in-person personal chemistry and a lot of that shifted over to Zoom the last couple of years and it's just not the same. It like it just from from an audience perspective, it's just not the same. You can tell how disconnected it is. I totally agree. And that's actually something that I wanted to bring up as well. That on these live shows, there are so many moving parts. 
to that go on behind the scenes to make these happen. So that definitely adds up when it comes to the expenses. And Mm -hmm. yeah, so I know as sad as it is, I definitely, as you said, understand why, you know, there's definitely a merit for why they're doing it, especially with it not being the same in-person interaction that you used to have years ago. Yeah, I'd be remiss if I didn't give a shout-out to one more person who I worked with, uh, Laurel Ward, who's a tremendous on-air personality as well. Hopefully, uh, she lands on her feet as well. A lot of people that I worked with there who uh, do tremendous work, and I hope that the industry uh, has some opportunities for them, but... uh... It's not always the case. Amanda, thank you for this. I always appreciate talking about uh, these kinds of things, even if the news bums me out a little bit. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk next week. I'm off to the new Ed Sheeran album. (laughs) Ooh, all right. Well, you have fun with that. That's Amanda Shikarchi with the Entertainment Report. Coming up after the break, there's a lawsuits being brought against cold effects around some false advertising. John Lepke will pose some questions about that suit to myself, Ramya and Nazreen as part of the roundtable. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Nazreen Abdel-Majid and Ramya Amuthan are standing by, ready to be put to the test by John Lepke, who has a roundtable topic all about a lawsuit against us some cold medication companies in Canada. Mm-hmm. So yesterday it came to light that the Canadian distributors of cold effects are facing a class action lawsuit that alleges false advertising. The suit is focused on advertising that labels these products as, and I'm quoting here, proven by science, clinically proven, with clinically proven ingredients, or have clinically proven formula. It's fair to say that we rarely see these lawsuits hit the national news, save for the claims against Canadian bread sellers that we saw earlier this year. But that appears to be changing. The distributors argue that they made no false claims, as you would, while the plaintiffs are seeking damages for people who bought various cold effects products from as far back as 2017. This leads me to our question of the day, as promised, some quizzing. So there's a uh, there's a voluntary database maintained by the Canadian Bar Association of class action lawsuits. How many of these four options um, do you think there are entries in that database? Is it A, 742, B, 4,096, C, 1,308, or D, uh, we're not quoting Orwell here, 1984? (laughs) Okay, okay, let's put our heads together on this one, Ramya and Nazreen. Let's be collaborative on this. My instinct on any kind of multiple-choice question is to eliminate the highest and the lowest number. Mm -hmm. So 742 and 4,096 both stand out to me as being too low and too high. What do you think, Ramya? Yeah, I was actually going to go with the highest, but I'm down oh. to go with the second highest. Wait, wait, wait. So is that your approach with multiple choice? You'll sometimes go with the <laughs> no, highest? just with this particular question. <laughs> okay, so your lean is either 4096 or 1984. Nazreen, what do you think of the idea of taking out the highest and the lowest right off the top here? Uh, 
I was gonna go with the lowest too. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. Um, wow. Weird. Okay. We do not have. Okay. You know what? Unraveling okay. System. You know what? You know what? Let's do. Let's do it this way. Let's do it this way. We all have our different instincts here. Rami, are you comfortable taking forty ninety six, Nazreen seven forty two, sure. and then I'll take thirteen oh eight. I'll take the middle grounds. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. Then, let's do it. And then if none of us get it right, then John gets the point. Okay. John, uh, what's the answer? I get the point. It's 1984. Oh. Wow. That was my second choice, though. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 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 on, on ranked balloting, on balloting Ramia got this, got this right. Uh, you know, John, as you point out here in a preamble you sent via email, obviously we think about lawsuits and the litigious nature of society being a little bit more of an American concept. Ramia, how would you feel if Canada became a little bit more litigious, maybe especially on things like the accessibility file. Oh, yeah. I mean, to me, it would make much more sense in the direction that we're going with certain things. People are fighting for a lot of um, different causes now. There's more awareness of how to do things in, you know, legality. Um, it goes straight to legislation or, you know, band together to make legal differences. I'm not saying this hasn't happened before. I'm just seeing a lot more diversity of what we're fighting for. So mm -hmm. um, it makes much more sense to me. Yeah, I'm I'm less inclined to be suing uh, Burger King over Whoppers or cold effects <laughs> over false claims. But Nazreen, I do think in more structural elements, there could be some lessons to be learned about the American litigious system, especially on, on the human rights or accessibility file. Mm -hmm. It seems like their process is a little bit more straightforward, whereas we're going to like human rights commissions who have like non-binding findings. Yeah, I feel like it's more difficult over here rather than America. Um, but I agree with Ramya in the terms of I feel like there's more differences now, especially when it comes to the disability aspect to it. So I feel like people are taking more action when it comes to even, uh, you know, standing up for whatever it may be, just mm -hmm. like this lawsuit. So I I agree with you. It could be better. But there are some differences, yeah. <laughs> uh, John, for fear of opening up the can once again of the notwithstanding clause that you and I talked about a couple of weeks ago, how would you feel if Canada started moving towards a little bit more of a litigious bent, especially on on files like uh, the accessibility file, the disability file, maybe rather than, say, uh, cold effects or uh, Burger King Whoppers? I think I'd like to see maybe an offshoot of a more litigious thing because one of the one of the benefits of the American system of more lawsuits is that you do end up inherently with stronger legislation. I think there is an argument to be made that things like the Accessible Canada Act, where I live, Saskatchewan is is putting forward their sort of provincial version. They tend to be toothless, and I think part of that is because they don't have that history of um, very public, very loud, very expensive lawsuits. Okay, okay, let's go around the table here quick. I am not a cold FX user. I always thought it seemed a little bit too good to be true. Not an emergency user. I'm an after-the-fact kind of cold medication user. Love me some NyQuil to get a good night's sleep when I'm a little bit ill, but I do miss the good old days of original Sudafed, but then people were using it to make methamphetamine, so can't, can't get that anymore. Uh, John, your cold medication of choice. Uh, I just suffer through it. 
uh, <laughs> Mr. Mr. Tough Guy over here. Uh, I also hey, wanted... I didn't say it was a. I didn't say it was a sensible decision. <laughs> it's just <laughs> the one I made. I also want to give some love to Neo Citrum. Neo Citrum is a good one too. Nazreen, I feel like you're always catching colds here and there. What's your What's mm-hmm. your remedy of choice? I always go with Dayquil and Nyquil, but yeah. I have to be honest. I have to be honest. I always wait until like near the end of my cold to actually take it. I forget to buy in the beginning. <laughs> oh my gosh. So. Oh my gosh. That happens to me all the time too. I'm like, I get sick and I'm like, where's my Neo Citrum? It's like, oh, well, you got to go to the store. I'm too sick to go to the store. How long is it going to take Amazon to get to me? Two days, two days. Uh, Ramya, what about you? You strike me as someone who just suffers through it. Suffers through. Oh. I try to take like, you know, the emergency, uh, um, vitamin C yeah. packets and yeah. whatever, but that's the most I'll do. I, probably by the end of it is when I start to take laws and just because your cough won't go. You feel so much better, but your cough won't leave. So you're like, I got to get rid of this. So that's the most. All right, honestly. John, thank you for this. Ramya, don't go too far, but Nazreen, right before I say goodbye to you, it's a big weekend in the life of Nazreen Abdel Majid. What's going on? I have my wedding on Sunday and I'm so excited but overwhelmed. <laughs> Uh, Nazreen, this is really lovely news. I remember the day you came in to tell me you got engaged. It was so exciting. I want to wish you and your partner all the best. A lovely day of celebration. I'm sorry that I can't be there. I'm going to be at a different wedding this weekend. So you lost the power ranking battle in relationship. But uh, next time you come to the office, give me a heads up in advance and there'll be a little card and an envelope waiting for you. So uh, just give me the heads up next time you're on your way into the office. But all the love and all the best to you and your new husband. I hope you have a great time this weekend. Thank you so much, and you'll be missed, Dave, but I'll send so many, so many pictures. Don't okay, worry. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm not that much fun at a wedding, believe me. I, uh, <laughs> I, I, it's, 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 I'm not as excited as you think I am off the air. Let's bring in a Ramya Amuthan, because Ramya, you are the host of Kelly and Ramya, coming our way, 2 p.m. Eastern time on the Mighty Airwaves of AMI-TV. What's coming up on this Friday episode of the show? Yep, we got our regular lineup of app update uh, where we're going to talk about Spotify using AI to automatically clone and translate podcast voices. So one of these legitimate ways that uh, AI voice is going to be used. And that's what John Beeler we're going to talk about. Also sports with Brock Richardson. Um, and that is going to include the Canadian women's soccer team mm-hmm. qualifying for Paris. So looking forward to that chat. And on the chatty bookshelf, we're talking about surely you can't be serious. This is the title of an audiobook <laughs> that uh, Ryan can't get enough of Ryan Huey. And he's going to tell us why. Ramia, are you going to Nisreen's wedding? Absolutely, Dave. Uh, I'm also not as fun as you think I am out there. Maybe, uh, maybe you're legitimately aware of how not fun I am, but I will be there. That's not true. <laughs> I hung out with you at Jeff Ryman's wedding last year, and we had a lot of fun. Oh, we, had a whole bu- we had a whole bunch of fun. Okay. Uh, to be fair, you brought the fun that day. Well, so. I don't know about that one. Uh, Ramya, thank you for this. Have a great day. Enjoy Nazreen's wedding. Dave. Thank you. <laughs> that is Ramya Amuthan. You can find Kelly and Ramya at 2 p.m. Eastern time on the mighty airwaves of AMI-TV, AMI-audio, and the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. Coming up after the break, the Writers Guild of America has officially ended their strike. Greg David takes a closer look at the new contract agreement. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The fourth season of Level Playing Field debuts next week. AMI is marking the occasion with a special event. Communication specialist Greg David has all sorts of details. Hey, good morning, Greg. Good morning. Happy Friday. Greg, happy Friday to you as well. The weekend is imminent, kind of like the 2024 Paralympic Games. Mm -hmm. Paralympian Greg Westlake is the host of Level Playing Field. Who are some of the notable para-athletes that he's going to feature this season? Uh, we've got a lot. We've got Marissa Papa Konstinu, uh, who's a para-athletic Olympian. Uh, Darda Sales, who's a wheelchair basketball player. Uh, Tyler Turner, who does snowboard. Allison Levine, who uh, I'm sure AMI folks know a lot about already from for Boccia. Mm -hmm. And uh, Brianna Hennessy, who uh, performs in para-canoe and para-kayak all appear on uh, this season of Level Playing Field. My gosh, star-studded, and a lot of those folks yeah. are going to be on their path to Paris as the show rolls out. So really, really exciting times. I mean, you can really feel the excitement brewing here, but it's not just para-athletes themselves that get featured here. There's also community and sporting groups. So who are some of the groups that stand out this year? Yeah, so Challenger Baseball is one of them, and they're partnered with the Toronto Blue Jays Jays Care Foundation. And so we're going to learn more about their goal of making the sport more accessible for people with disabilities. And another one of note is a Whitby-based company called ASAD, and their program aims to provide young para-athletes with a holistic approach to training. So really at the ground roots level of the Paralympic, uh, the Paralymp uh, Paralympic initiative in this country. One of the reasons why I adore Level Playing Field as a show, because it considers both the grassroots and the elite, and that yep. is something that maybe gets lost in the parasport conversation more broadly. When some of like the big boys, some of the big media entities talk about it, it's always the elite elite, forgetting that to get the elites, you got to start with the grassroots somewhere. So I love, love, love that Level Playing Field continues to put focus and spotlights on the groups as well. Greg. Let's not uh, bury the lead too much here, though, because there is a special screening and event happening next Tuesday in Toronto, the center of the universe. What are <laughs> the details around this special level playing field event? Yeah, we're thrilled about this event that's taking place next week in Toronto. Uh, Devin Haru, is, who is a CBC sports broadcaster. So good. And his, so he's good. Really yeah, and he's he's kind of taken it on his shoulders to cover the Paralympics, Pan Am, game, Pan Am Games, para-athletes overall for CBC. And so he's going to be moderating a panel uh, where we're going to have uh, Greg Westlake and Marissa and uh, and Brianna all on the panel. And, and actually what we're going to do is we're going to show the very first episode of Season 4 of Level Playing Field, and then we're going to head into that panel discussion. And, and we've already talked to Devin about this. It's going to be a very honest conversation uh, talking about not only you know, some of the triumphs uh, around Paralympics, but also some of the work that needs to be done, you know, including, uh, you know, paying athletes for their medal performance, mm -hmm. something that uh, that uh, able-bodied athletes do currently enjoy. So working on talking about that. And of course, like you mentioned, there's going to be a preview to the the uh, the Paris Paralympic Games where we already know that Brianna is going to be uh, competing. So lots of conversation around that as well. And it's just an opportunity for also media folks from around Toronto to learn more about what AMI does and more specifically about level play field because it's the only show that we know of certainly in north america that's doing the type of a storytelling that uh, that they are greg what is the deal if somebody wants to appear at this event or show up at this event is it, is it closed is it too late what's going on 
Yeah, I mean, at this point, it, it was invite only. But if you're in the Toronto area and want to come by the come by the Miles Nadal Jewish Community Center, which is at the corner of Spadina and Bloor Street in Toronto, uh, it's going to be taking place a uh, Tuesday uh, from six thirty until eight eight thirty or so. So yeah, if you wanna if you wanna come by, it's on the TTC line. There's paid parking uh, within uh, with not too far away, and uh, all most most importantly, the building is fully accessible. So yeah, if you want to come down and and take part in uh, Meet some folks and learn more about the show and what we do. Uh, come on by on uh, Tuesday at uh, 6.30 at the Miles Adult Jewish Community Center. Yeah, unfortunately, the evening events are a little tough for me on my work schedule. I won't be there, but I've been meaning to go down to Miles and the Doll for a while now. I hear it's an awesome, awesome place, and I hear they have a sauna, and your boy is uh, Jones and Fresh Fitz. <laughs> they do. They've got a sauna. They've got a lap pool. Yeah, it's a it's a great facility for sure. All right. Uh, just a reminder, though, there will be some Now with Dave Brown presence on uh, mm-hmm. site that day. Alex Smythe is going to be on location. So we'll see your producer, Andrika Delanerol. And they're going to get some interviews with a couple of the athletes that will be shared on now over the course of the coming weeks. And don't forget the new season of Level Playing Field debuts Tuesday, October the 3rd, 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. Or once it airs, you can find the new seasons on the AMI-TV app. So lots of ways for you to engage with a level playing field, both the new seasons and seasons past. Greg, turning to what is the biggest entertainment story of the week, the writer's strike is over. It lasted Mm -hmm. for 148 days. The Writers Guild of America has come to an agreement with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. Greg, what are some of the details here? Obviously, there was a lot of consternation about the big issues going in. What are some of the details about the agreement itself? Yeah, well, you know, specifically, there was one about the number of writers that were in a room where a show was in development. Uh, And then so that's, you know, kind of hammering out those first few scripts. And so there was a worry about that because uh, traditionally what had been happening increasingly was that production companies were having one or two writers kind of bang out those uh, development scripts and then not hire them if the series went on. So uh, this new season uh, within this agreement, this new agreement, excuse me, is when a show is in development, there must be at least three writers hired before a series has been ordered to series, as well as at least three writer producers, and that includes the showrunner. And so that uh, those six individuals are guaranteed at least 10 consecutive weeks of employment. And so like that, like I said, this addresses the issue where a production company would uh, would hire one or two writers in the development process and let them go immediately after yeah. the scripts were written. Um, if a show goes to order, uh, there uh, for six episodes or fewer, there must be at least three writers and three writer producers in that room. If a series goes to seven to 12 episodes, the minimum number of writers goes up to five. And if your series goes to 13 or more episodes, the minimum number of writers in that that room goes up to six. So again, just really establishing, the, you know, the baseline and also the amount of weeks that people are working, which is great. Yeah, people like Mike Schur, who was a writer on The Office, Parks and Recreation, The Good Place, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, he was on the forefront of a lot of the campaigning and advocacy here, and that was one of the big things that he was hammering home. If you don't allow an opportunity for a writer to go from development to production, you're actually stifling their career path as well. So what you're identifying there is a big, big deal in terms of the forward movement of a writer's career, not just getting paid in the moment. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. You, you bring up a really good point. They're there at that ground level doing that world building. And also, it's that job security that everybody's looking for, right? Yeah. Well, what about the artificial intelligence side? I know that AI is obviously this buzzword that everybody loves to yeah. float around in the talk show space to stay, but it was a legitimate concern for the writers. Was there any resolution on the AI friends? Yeah, there absolutely was. And this is really interesting. So in this new agreement, AI cannot write or rewrite any literary material. And AI-generated material cannot be used to undermine a writer's credit or separated or, or involved in their rights. So a writer can choose to use AI, AI excuse me, when performing writing services, but the production company can't require the writer to use that software like ChatGPT, just as an example. Uh, and also the production company has to disclose to the writer if any of the materials given to them has been generated. So it's going both ways. Writers are, aren't going to be using it. Uh, and if they do, they need to let the production company know. And on the other side, the production company, if they use AI for some kind of generated content that they're passing along to the writer, they have to let them know about that. Uh, so yeah, really, really uh, kind of uh, the word that they've been using is that it, they're guard railing the AI. Mm. Uh, it's very, very specific about where and when it can and cannot be used, which is great. What kind of resolution happened around residual payments, i.e. what a writer would get if a show ends up in syndication or but now more specifically picked up on a streaming service? Yeah, yeah, this was an interesting one too. So uh, right now, uh, there's going to be, with this new agreement, uh, there's going to be a bonus for writers whose original TV shows and movies uh, become successful for your Netflixes, Amazon Prime, Apple Plus, and other streaming services. Uh, this bonus is going to cover high-budget made-for-streaming titles specifically. Uh, most original series on the major streamers meet that uh, quotient. However, it does say that shows that have been kind of grandfathered in, like Suits, for instance, has become a huge hit on Netflix. It's not going to be retroactive. If it was an old show that is moving to a streaming service, those aren't going to be uh, right. those bonuses won't be in place. Uh, it's just on things that are going to be moving forward that are made specifically for streaming services. But the good thing about it is that um, you can look at the bonuses uh, ranging from nine thousand to sixteen thousand um, dollars for TV episodes, depending on how successful they are on those streaming services, and over forty thousand dollars for a feature film with a budget of over thirty million dollars. And uh, so, yeah. I mean, now they're building that in that, you know, like athletes, right? If the, if the performance is there, you're getting a bonus. Uh, right so on. great news. Greg, thank you for this. So informative. Thank you for staying on this beat the last 148 days. <laughs> All the best. Have a great weekend. Thanks. You too, Dave. That's Greg David, AMI Communications Specialist in Chelsea, Quebec. That's all the time there is for the show today. That's all the time there is for the show this week. We're back Monday, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on a... No, Tuesday, AMI, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Roll those credits, gang. Host, Dave Brown. Co-host producer, Alex Smythe. Sports reporter, Brock Richardson. Contributors, Rami Amuthan, Nazreen Abdel-Majid. Senior show producer, Indrika Delanerol. Visual producer, Bruce Baclarian. Producers, Paul Daniel, Marianne Dion-Jones. Production assistant, Kingsley Juco. Director, Anastasia Spalding-Stenhouse. Control room operators, Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, Parker Oxtoby. Manager of operations, Kyle Harper. Manager of Live Production, Paulo Deneen. Director of Content Development, Kara Nye. Vice President of Programming, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. Give us your feedback, 1-866-509-4545. 
Copyright 2023, Accessible Media Inc. An AMI original production. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI TV. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.